Blog Talk Radio. Who is January Jones? She is not a young, beautiful, talented actress on Mad Men. She is not an older, gorgeous, exotic dancer from the Johnny Carson Show. She is an author, and she wrote, Thou Shall Not Wine, the 11th Commandment, that reached number one at Amazon.com. She is a reality TV golf personality with World High Stakes Golf televised on HDNet. She is a humorist and winologist expert. She is your featured host today on January Jones Sharing Success Stories. So sit back, relax, and get ready to laugh and listen to Ms. Jones with her eclectic roster of guests as you learn life's lessons. These stories plus sharing equals success. Welcome and remember, beware because you are entering the no-whining world of January Jones. Now let me ask you a question. Have you ever been close to someone who has committed suicide? Tell me, do you know what signs to look for when someone is contemplating suicide? Have you ever wanted to know about how a family can handle this traumatic event? Would you like to learn what to do and what not to do when confronted with suicide? Can you imagine what the stunning suicide statistics are? Now tell me, have you ever heard about a book called Batterfield, How My Family Survived Suicide? Or better yet, would you like to meet someone who has some of the answers that we're looking for? Now, are you ready to learn how to be successful and how one family dealt with suicide? If you can answer yes or maybe to any of these questions, then you are in the right place. And I would like to welcome you to January Jones Sharing Success Stories. Today, I will be introducing you to my guest. He is a success coach extraordinaire, and he will provide us with informative and inspirational lessons and some really, really great advice. I am pleased to announce that our show is now live on talk for media at iHeartRadio with over 55 million subscribers. We are archived at iHeart for your listening pleasure. Also, LinkedIn announced that my profile was one of the top 5% most viewed last year. Now, let me tell you a little bit about my guest and the book he wrote. It is the inspirational story of a high-profile art-dealing family's journey to survive without answers after one of their sons takes his life. Shown through the realistic visions of their youngest child, now a parent himself, then just 16, it is a masterful portrayal of love, forgiveness, and acceptance, emotionally gripping with an inside look at the mysterious art world. This is a powerful family saga that will change you forever. It is my pleasure to welcome the author to our show. Hello, Carl David. How are you today? I'm great, January. Thank you so much for having me on tonight. I really appreciate the opportunity. 
Okay, wonderful. And I've been looking forward to having you on. I've read the reviews for your book, and they're fantastic. Did I mispronounce? How do you pronounce? Is it Baderfield or Bader? Baderfield, yes. Baderfield. Okay, I got that right now. Let's uh, begin with uh, where your story began, where you were born, um, and your family, what the family was like, and who your early mentors were, Carl. I was born in 1949 in Philadelphia. I was the youngest of three children. Um, we had an idyllic American family. We didn't have a dog, but we had everything else in the station wagon. And, uh, <laughs> we were very close-knit. And um, I, I grew up in Philadelphia, went to high school there, I went to college for two years at Temple University, got thrown out. Um, that's a whole separate story. And <laughs> I was reinstated, and then I went off to Oglethorpe College in Atlanta for my last two years of school and uh, wound up on the dean's list in Spanish Sounder Society. And um, had to prove myself at that point to, to both myself and to my folks. And um, and then I wound up coming into the family business uh, after my college experience, and I've been here ever since, since 1970, oh. full-time. Oh, my gosh. Well, I want to hear all about the art world. Now, um, who were your early mentors when you were a child and then you when you went into the work world? Well, my folks were my real mentors. My dad um, initially for a long time, who really taught me life lessons, how to grow up, how to survive, and just how to be a, a, a wonderful human being, as was he. And my brothers also were my mentors. So, you know, I looked up to everyone as I was growing up, you know, everyone in our family. And, and you know, the influences really rubbed off on me, and, and I took all the goodness that I could see and learn and I just kind of incorporated it into my, my being, if you will. Mm-hmm. Now, your book, uh, Baderfield, How My Family Survived Suicide, begins as a memoir and homage to your father, but it's actually uh, much more important. Would you tell us uh, a little bit about how long it took you to write the book and why it starts off as a, a to homage to your father? Sure. I mean, my dad was my hero, and mm-hmm. uh, we used to fly. He was a pilot as well as an art dealer, and we used to fly in and out of Beater Field in Atlantic City all the time. So I kind of felt it appropriate, since that was actually the last place that I saw him, to start the story there. Mm-hmm. And um, it took decades for me to write this book. I did start out as homage to my dad, and, you know, it was very painful. I lost my dad at a young age. Uh, he was mm-hmm. only 58. Uh-huh. And I, I uh, had a, a battle with myself before I could even go back to Bader Field. It, it was years and years later. It was mm-hmm. Back in 2008 was the first time I was able to get back to the field and, and kind of go back home, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, it The book was flat for a long time because until I got a publisher who gave me an editor mm-hmm. who explained to me, we, wanna, we want you to... We want to show your story. We don't. We don't want to tell it. So we oh, need a dialogue, okay. and they uh-huh. gave me a great editor. And I, they didn't. Sh- they didn't tell me how to do it. They showed me. They, they showed me how to do it. Uh-huh. And in six weeks, I, re- I rewrote the whole book, <gasps> and, it, wow. and it really it came to life. I mean, I had worked on this thing for decades, and there were many times my wife said, "You know, if it's if it's too difficult, don't do it. If it's too painful." And I said, "You know what? No, I have to do this. I have to do this for the kids we don't have yet, and mm-hmm. I really need to memorialize my dad." And I went back and I dug in because I had blocked out a lot of emotions, which is one of the reasons it took as long as it did. And, and she had said to me, my wife, who was my editor, 
and and my soulmate, if you will. Uh-huh. You know, sure. if I don't get it, your readers aren't going to get it. Not, I'm not feeling it. So that was the blockage that I had to work through and to go back and really open up my emotions and relive a lot of pain. Yeah. Now, when your father died, did you stop flying or did you continue flying? Uh, interesting question. I still had the passion. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to sell the airplane. I had a choice of whether I keep it and I go officially get my license. I mean, I had lots of lots and lots, I mean, hundreds of hours that I had logged, but um, never really put them into a, a formal you know, position. So I had a choice to keep the plane. And one day I just took the plane out of the hangar, started up the engine, did the, did the pre-check, pre-flight and taxied out to the runway. And, uh-huh. I, and I had a split the <laughs> second decision to make. Do I go up or do I not? And I was married. I didn't have kids yet. And, you know, I said to myself, what am I doing? This is, this is crazy. I know I can do this, you know, uh-huh. but I, I, I decided at that point, I, my, my common sense came back to me and I, I taxied her back to the hangar, and um, yeah, I, I had a seller. So I did, and that was very painful, but it was mm-hmm. more painful to, to try and fly solo without my dad. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure it would be painful to even go up and fly without your dad. Exactly. Um, yeah, that would be a very difficult thing to do. Now, you were 16 years old when suicide happened in your family. And I, I can understand why it took so long for you to write this or to even talk about it or think about it. Because back then, people just didn't talk about suicide, did they? No, uh, it was a dirty word. And mm-hmm. it was an act that was looked upon with a jaundiced eye. And you were you, even though you didn't do it, you were looked at as if you were somehow related to it, and you you also had the same kind of negative feel about yourself. I mean, it, it's, it's all craziness. I mean, today, mm-hmm. you know, you, you if someone's got those feelings, you want to help them. You don't want to ignore them or turn your head away because it's an ugly act. Yeah, it's an ugly act for sure, but um, there are reasons for it, and without awareness and exposure, it's never going to change. Mm-hmm. But, you know, fortunately, we're not in the 1960s anymore, and there's a whole different um, attitude and mentality toward it. Yeah. You know, we had a suicide in, in our family, and basically no one ever, ever talked about it. It was never spoken of, which tells you what p- the mentality in the 60s was for people. Now, um, when you look back on it and you look at it from an adult perspective, Objectively, who do you think took it the hardest, your father or your mother? That's a tough question. I think everybody in their own right uh, fell very hard on this. And I think my dad, obviously, it, it killed him eight years later. Um, my mother felt it the rest of her life, although she lived to be 94, and uh-huh. you know, we were very lucky to have her that long. But um, I, I don't know. That, I, I don't know how to answer that question. I think that they both suffered Mm-hmm. Uh, an internal uh, pain. Yeah, I think for a parent, it's probably throughout their entire life, it's probably the last thing they think about when they go to bed at night, and it's probably the first thing they remember when they wake up. It's something that you just don't ever get over, do you? No, you know, you only learn to live with it as best you can. You never get over it. It becomes emblematic as to who you are I and mean, you wear this thing the rest of your life. And, mm-hmm. you know, at that point, it's a matter of what you do with it. For years, I was kind of in denial. Even when I was in college, I, I would just push it away and, and mm-hmm. not, not 
allow it, you know, the existence of the thing that it actually happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can't do that because the emotional body runs the physical body, and it comes back and smacks you right in the face, and there's, just <laughs> yeah. no, there's no escaping it. I mean, you really, you got to face it. You know, mm-hmm. it's just something that's it's, it's part of you, and you can't deny it. Now, you were 16. How old? Uh, your brother who committed suicide, his name was Bruce, right? Right, yeah. yeah was and, 20, he was 22. 22 years old. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow, he was so very, very young. You know, we're going to take a break and hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to discuss with Carl David uh, what kind of a state of mind his brother Bruce was in before this uh, tragedy and some of the things that you can look for if you are dealing with someone who you think might be depressed and considering suicide. We'll be right back with Carl David. Do you desire more control over your money and financial matters? Would you like simple solutions to complex financial topics? Do you want more security in your financial future? If you answered yes to any of these questions, the book 101 Principles to Wealth is your answer. It's available now on Amazon.com. That's 101 Principles to Wealth by Charles Brokop. Order today. Do you want to learn how to live into your dreams? One Door Closes, Overcoming Adversity by Following Your Dreams. The new book by Tom Ingracia and Jared Kredimsky captures the thought-provoking stories of 16 people from all walks of life who have triumphed over adversity to achieve their goals. Plus, you'll get 10 self-assessment tools to design your own blueprint for success. Unlock your true potential. Fulfill your dreams. Be inspired. One Door Closes is available from Amazon.com. Well, I'm pleased to announce that uh, Charles Brokoff will be back with us next month on the show, sharing his fantastic book, 101 Principles to Success. And Tom and Gracia and Jared Kerminsky will be back with their book, One Door Closes. And their special guest next week will be Sherry Payne, who was one of the singers with the Supremes from the 1960s Motown sound. We're back right now with my guest, Carl David, and we were talking about what happened to his family after his brother committed suicide. Did your family have any clue that he was depressed or that he was even thinking about suicide? No, we had nothing. We were totally blindsided. I mean, he seemed fine, um, and he was a little bit distressed about his reserve unit um, getting ready to be called up to go to Vietnam, but... um, and that doesn't make a whole lot of sense either. I mean, but then again, someone who's in that frame of mind doesn't think clearly. And, um, you know, my my parents would have somehow arranged for him not to go. I mean, this was when uh, the uh-huh. war was being depraved. You know, it was, it was being shown on television with, you know, kids coming back in body bags and limbless. And, I mean, it was horrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, no, we saw nothing, absolutely nothing. No note, you know, no signs. Uh, no clues. Oh, and did he commit suicide at home, or did he go out and do it somewhere else? It was actually in the gallery up on the fourth floor. Oh, my gosh. And who found him? My father. Oh, wow. What an experience for your father. It's the kind of thing you never recover from. No no, no information. 
Do you think it might have been just depression over going to Vietnam, which I can certainly understand, because quite frankly, during that time, no one really wanted to go there. No, this is true. Um, don't know. I mean, it certainly could have been one of the contributing factors. There could have been something else going on in his mind, some other demons that he was dealing with that he kept to himself. Mm-hmm. Um, hard to know, you know, and, and I guess even knowing wouldn't really matter because it wouldn't bring him back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, at this now, point. You know. Now, did he work with your father at the art gallery? Um, he did. He was going to night school at Temple University, and my father was about to set up a frame shop for him on mm-hmm. uh, one of the upper floors of the gallery because mm-hmm. this, this was a kid who could take a car apart and put it back together again, uh-huh. um, and it would and it would run. <laughs> yeah. If I did that, it would probably be laying yeah. in extra pieces. <laughs> <laughs> right, I know. <laughs> okay, so your dad finds him on the fourth floor of the gallery. What happens next? I'm sure everyone in the family must just go into complete, total, absolute shock. Yeah, Wouldn't I mean, I was, in, I was in high school at the, at the uh, auditorium in the morning assembly when I got a, a call up to the, the uh, front of the stage uh, saying that I had to go home. There was an emergency, and I had no clue. I thought maybe there was a – Bruce hadn't come home that night, obviously, and I thought maybe there were um, – some involvement in a car accident or something. I had, I had no clue. I mean, I, 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 no way could I have seen this coming. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, when I, I, I drove that day and I, I raced home um, not knowing what to expect. And, you know, when I mm-hmm. walked in the front door, my brother, t- my oldest brother told me what had happened. And I just like, like shock. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How old was your oldest brother? Alan uh, was 25 at the time. Mm-hmm. So he, so Bruce was the middle child. Yes. Yeah. So what happened after you had this horrible tragedy? What did the family do? Did uh, you go to counseling? How did you try to handle this, tr- this tremendous trauma? Well, initially, um, we we had all our family and friends gather around us, and uh, you know, um, the funeral and and all that. And it, once that's done. Uh, after a few days, people go home, and you kind of have to pull together. And, um, you know, initially nobody wanted to really talk about it because we were mm-hmm. protective of our parents. They were protective yeah. of us. And uh-huh. they kind of lost the will to live for a while. And, and my mother used to tell me that, you know, she and my father would talk and say, Sam, we have two other kids. You know, mm-hmm. we can't just throw the towel in. We have mm-hmm. to live for them. Mm-hmm. So they did, you know, but it, it took a lot, a lot of effort. It took a lot of professional help um, because this is something you, you can't survive without. I mean, it's just, it's too big. Um, I had the benefit of um, a psychoanalysis, which basically saved my life. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. my parents had, uh, you know, psychiatric help and, and medical help and sort of my brother. And I mean, it, it took a long time to get back on our feet, you know, for the rays of sunshine to come back into our lives. But we realized that the circle that was five is now four, and we had to live on for ourselves and for my brother. Mm-hmm. In his in his memory, and yeah. you had to your family had to be, I would imagine, proactive because let's face it, during the sixties, getting professional help was not an easy thing. It wasn't done. If you had said you were going to a psychiatrist, people would just probably back off. Were, your family was proactive, and you got right to it, didn't you? We did, and you know what we had to. It's the only way we could have survived, and we, you know, kind of shut out the criticism of the outside world because we didn't care. We had mm-hmm. we had at that point one job to do, and that was survival. And uh-huh. 
anyway we knew how we were going to do it. You know, it was love, forgiveness, and acceptance, basically, with the three tools that we knew how to use. But we had to, we had to really dig down deep and, and claw our way out of darkness. And every day you wake up, it starts again, you know. But uh-huh. Oh, yeah. You either yeah. quit or you survive. And, you know, we weren't quitters. Mhm mhm and you had each other which is so so important looking back on it uh and I know you've studied and uh you know quite a bit about suicide more than most of my listeners will I hope ever know um what are some do's and don'ts when you're someone has committed suicide and you're trying to deal with the aftermath well you have to be there for them uh, as much as they'll let you in and you have to encourage them to get help the um, one thing you don't do is, you know, create any, any kind of judgment, um, you know, or cast aspersions on on that person or the family or anybody else because they're going to feel like they're responsible to some mm-hmm. measure anyway. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they really shouldn't own that because it's not something that you do to someone else. It's something that does that on their own. Uh-huh. Uh, grant, granted, there's situations where someone's depressed and they can't see beyond that depression and maybe they didn't take their medication or maybe they refused to get medication or maybe they didn't even know they were depressed. But there mm-hmm. are lots of reasons that people take their life. And when when you hear of, well, I know when we hear of something like that, um, it, it kind of reopens our own situation. So, you know, I, I think you have to be sympathetic and you have to be kind and you have to be there to help them if they want it. Mhm mhm yeah and 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 it's so important to be non-judgmental and to try to be unconditional in your support and not be critical now let's talk a little bit about medications because back then we didn't even know or hadn't even heard the word antidepressant and now so many people have the opportunity to get help through therapy and with prescriptions what are your thoughts on this topic well, I think that can be a lifesaver, uh, but again, on the other side of the coin, if it's abused, it can be a killer. So, mm-hmm. you know, those kind of things have to be dealt with with professionals um, who deal with this kind of situation, and not necessarily your your corner doctor, but someone who, if, you know, if there's a situation like this where there's a severe depression or a suspicion of a depression, I think you really need to go to a doctor who's schooled in that area of medicine, who can see the signs and know. You know, the proper prescription, the proper administration, dosages and all that kind of thing, because a lot of lives have been and I'm sure will continue to be saved by proper medication, you know, mm-hmm. when someone's afflicted with depression. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, an illness just like any other ailment. Absolutely. And fortunately, I think more people are beginning to understand that. Now, when you were writing this book, which you previously said it took decades to get it, you were thinking about it and attempting to write it. Did it help you heal? Was it cathartic for you? It was cathartic. I mean, painful as it was at times, um, it really helped me get back to my feelings and kind of unroll this ball of um, emotional Flying, you know, a step at a time, and I had done that going through a psychoanalysis. But you know, the feelings stay with you. And sometimes, when it's an anniversary date, birth date, or death date, mm-hmm. uh, and I, my wife knows I did this for years, where I just kind of like shoved it aside and ignored it. You know, I, I didn't mm-hmm. want to feel it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, who wants to feel pain? But you know, I would get headaches or stomach ailments or mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. not feel right, and, and so I allowed the feelings to surface. 
And I did that. And, you know, it, it's a learning curve. I mean, it takes years. I still don't like feeling it, but I do. And I know that it's part of me, so I can't, you know, I can't deny it. It's there. Oh, yeah. And it always will be with you. Uh, I've shared with my listeners before that over 40 years ago, my first husband was killed during Vietnam. And even now to that to this day, when we get to the date, the anniversary of his death, I kind of go, I slip into a depression <laughs> that week. I'm just kind of quiet. And it, it's something that you never can let go of. Don't you agree? I, oh, I agree totally. I'm sorry for your loss. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of these things that these, these anniversary dates or certain um, things in life that are really fabulous, more so than horrible, um, bring up that gap you know, that's mm-hmm. in your life. I mean, when there's mm-hmm. a great thing that occurs, oh, I wish they were here. Well, yeah. They're here in spirit, but they're just not here physically. Right. Now, tell me, was uh, was your mother able to read this book, and what was her reaction? Oh, she thought it was fabulous. I mean, she read it. Uh-huh. And, yeah. And it brought up all kinds of pain, but, you know, she was thrilled um, that I was able to do this, and, and she thought it was, she just thought it was incredible. And every time I do another radio interview or a television interview or a journal mm-hmm. interview, uh-huh. um, she would she would tune in and she was one of my biggest cheerleaders, you know, and, and uh-huh. through it all uh, because we lived it. Oh, absolutely, and uh, it's wonderful that she is still alive long enough to read it. And your book is actually a celebration of a family, and it's one of these uplifting memoirs. Believe me, it is not depressing, depressing, depressing. Carl has written it to help everyone enjoy life and look forward to more adventures. You know, we're going to take a break and hear from our sponsors. And when we come back with Carl, we're going to talk about some stunning statistics on suicide that will just amaze you. And also his feeling about pay it forward. We'll be right back with Carl David. Everyone deserves a happy life. Life is supposed to be fun. Your life is supposed to feel good and you're meant to feel happiness in your life and to satisfy your dreams. And you can. Because the only reason anyone wants anything or does anything is that they think they will feel better in the having of it or the doing of it. They think they will feel better in the experiencing of it. Coming soon, a website where you can learn more on how you can have the life you deserve at afeelgoodworld.com. Lately, there's a whining epidemic in our world. People are even whining about whining. Are you sick and tired of listening to everyone whining all the time? So was January Jones, the author of Thou Shall Not Whine, the 11th commandment that reached number one at Amazon.com. Ms. Jones based her book on a survey of the top 10 things that people whine about at all ages and all stages of life. January is a success coach that can tell you how to help others. When you buy Thou Shall Not Whine, the 11th commandment, you'll find out what people whine about and how to stop them from whining. This is the perfect gift book to give or get for any occasion. Thou Shall Not Wine was voted the best gift to be given anonymously for those special people in your life. Ms. Jones is an internationally known author in the style of Irma Bombeck, specializing in housewife humor with her book being published in Korea and China. You can find Thou Shall Not Wine at Amazon.com. Welcome back, and we're back with... Um 
Carl David, and we're talking about his fantastic book, Baderfield, How My Family Survived Suicide. Uh, Carl, could you share your website information and share with my listeners how they can get your book? Sure. Uh, my website is www.carledavid.com. It's C-A-R-L-E-D-A-V-I-D.com. Uh, don't forget the E. There's, there's somebody who gets very annoyed when he gets my email <laughs> and website okay. uh, The book can be found anywhere online. We decided not to go the bookstore route, but it is it is a soft copy and it can be found on my website. You can get it on Amazon. Um, uh-huh. it, it's also available on the Kindle, the Nook, the, I, the Apple iBook store, and in about 70 other different um, digital markets worldwide. So if you do a search for Baderfield by Carl David, it'll come up in a million places. And I think the download is about $7.77. It might even have dropped by now. Uh-huh. Um, the, the actual physical copy used to be sixteen ninety nine. I think they may be discounted as well. Um, and I have to say, it's, 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 it is a very inspirational read. Um, it's about this idyllic American family that was crushed by this, this horrible mm-hmm. event and how we all... Um, pulled together and, and did everything we could to survive it and move forward. Um, and as you said before, you know, you, you don't forget, you don't get over it. You just learn to live with it as best you can. It really is part of something you incorporate in your soul. And, you know, it's, it's what you do with it after that that counts. I know. I can tell you're so passionate about this. You said, I needed to reach out to those who are on the brink of killing themselves to show them there is always a better way. There is love, hope, and help available. This book will resonate with teens and young adults who may not realize the devastation of suicide and the permanent horror it inflicts on the family they leave behind. And no truer words were ever spoken or written. Um, hey, January, I've got a caller for you real quick. Okay. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, January? Good. And who is this? This is Cruiser Small. Okay. Hi, Cruiser. What's up? Well, I just wanted to let you know what a great guest you have there. We've known Carl for several years now. He's been on our radio show as well, and he's uh-huh. written a very nice book. I, I hope everybody goes out and purchases the book. It's very inspirational, and uh, he's done a great job with it. Oh, well, thank you for calling in. And uh, as he just briefly said, his book is available at Amazon, Kindle, and at his wonderful website. Carl, can you say hi to Cruiser? Sure. <laughs> hey, Cruiser, how are you? Hey, Carl, how you doing? I'm great, thanks. Thank you for calling in. I appreciate that. You're very welcome. It's a great show. Thank um, you. Well, we're so glad you're enjoying it. I'm truly enjoying having Carl on the show. Carl, could you share some um, stunning statistics about suicide that will give us more insight into this situation? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, some of these will, will absolutely knock your socks off. Um, in the uh, realm of the world, there are one million people a year who take their life, and that number is oh. growing. Wow. And that, that's a worldwide statistic. Um, in this country, there's one about every 16 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just, it's crazy. In the military, one a day, and among oh. veterans, 22 lives a day are lost to suicide. It's, it's the second leading cause of death um, for teenagers, well, actually, from, from kids age 10 to 24. 
Mm-hmm. And the third leading cause of death for college-age kids, mm-hmm. ages 12 to 18, um, more teenagers and young adults die from suicide than from cancer, heart disease, AIDS, birth defects, stroke, pneumonia, influenza, and chronic lung diseases combined. Oh. I mean, it's just it's out of control. It really is. It's out of control. I would have had no idea. I knew that there was a situation with the veterans because it's been in the forefront of the news. But to think a million people per year, and that's around the entire world. Um, this is uh, where, where did these? Who compiled these statistics? Uh, well, a lot of these come from the uh, the National Suicide. Foundation, the Jason uh-huh. Foundation. I mean, these, these are real statistics. And anybody can actually look them up and find them. Um, unfortunately, I mean, they're out there. But on the other hand, they have to be out there because if, if there's no impact and there's no incentive to, you know, make a movement forward to prevent this thing. I mean, mm-hmm. if people don't know, there's nothing they can do about it. And it's only when they have walks and they've got um, different charity events for suicide prevention that things get done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The American now Foundation you... for Suicide Prevention, for one, I mean, is a great organization, mm-hmm. um, and there are lots of them like that today that you know that have really raised awareness and, and given a lot of effort and time and monies to, uh, to help. Now you lived through it as a brother and a son, but as a father now, how has your perspective changed, and do you look at it through your father's eyes? Um, yeah, I mean, as a father, I can't even fathom the concept of losing a child. Um, in fact, we talked to our kids. We had to decide at what age it was appropriate for us to say something to them because we didn't want them to learn about my brother from anybody else. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we sat them down when we thought they were old enough to, to get it, but not to be freaked out by it completely. So that it was almost as if it were an insurance policy, so that you know they would know mm-hmm. the wrath of horror and the devastation this act leaves on a family, and that no matter what was going on in their lives ever, however insurmountable, however horrible it seemed, um, that we would be there for them and that this was never, ever, ever um, the answer to the problem because suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, it's a horrific tragedy and it offers uh, no solace to the lost, uh, to the family after something like this happens. It only actually increases their guilt and confusion and distress you want to pay it forward, and how do you plan to do that? Well, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to share our family's experience uh, mm-hmm. so that someone, even one person, might read this or hear about it and decide to choose to live instead of to die. So my whole effort at this point is to pay it forward by taking the darkest days of my life and doing something to benefit others with them. I might save a life, I might save a thousand lives, I might save a million lives. I don't know, and, and I don't really need to know. All I know mm-hmm. is that I'm, I'm putting it out there, uh, doing the best job that I can by taking this horrendous experience and trying to do something to benefit somebody else with it. Uh, you know, it might, it might make someone feel, but it might help a family who's gone through it to know mm-hmm. that we do go on, we do survive. You know, we're, mm-hmm. we're tainted with this, this after effect, but it's our obligation to go on and live our lives. People oh, need yeah. to know that. I know, because uh, when something like this happens, sharing your experience 
does help others. And, you know, the reality is there's no way of knowing how many people you will help. And the reality is if you can just save one life, all your efforts have been worthwhile. And um, it's, it's a real homage to your brother and to your parents. Uh, tell us a little bit about working with your father. I know you were in the art gallery with him and you're there now. What was that like? Oh, it was amazing. I only got to do it for, well, I grew up with it, but, you know, after college, I had three years before I lost my dad, and he was amazing, and and I assimilated so much of what he did, not just from listening to him, but more from watching him and emulating him. Um, He was just, he was a renaissance man. He was absolutely incredible, could do anything, and when he walked into a room, the room lit up, you know, like with with fire. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was amazing. (laughs) So I was very fortunate, you know, to have him uh, for the brief time that we had him. And I wouldn't have traded it for another 30 years with someone who was just kind of a dull, you know, lackluster, boring, uh, (laughs) run-of-the-mill person. Right, boring, you know. Uh, My father was, every minute was was exciting. You never knew what was going to come next. And um, he was just amazing. I mean, and he gave me that inspiration in life, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, that you, you, you need to live every minute. And save a little something for tomorrow, but don't waste today in case tomorrow doesn't come. Oh, wow. That's that's terrific advice. And that certainly was the mantra that he imparted to you. You know, we're going to take a break and hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little more about uh, living in the art dealer family that Carl David was born into. And we're going to talk about what success means to Carl today as we speak and if he has any regrets, things he wished he could do over, and advice for you. We'll be right back. Have you ever met someone who was unforgettable? Someone who has touched your heart and soul? People who have faced difficult problems? People who have fearlessly shared their stories, their struggles, and their successes? People who have priceless personalities? In my new book, Priceless Personalities, Success Stories Shared by January Jones, I am honored to be able to share with you people dealing with problems such as incest, molestation, child abuse, drug abuse, polygamy, unemployment, scandal, starting over, self-esteem, and workplace issues. My guests have all been exciting, eclectic, and energizing. They will amaze, amuse, and even astonish you. You will adore getting to meet them at Amazon.com. My book is now available, two-for-one, paperback and Kindle editions. Are you a fitness professional, a trainer, or a coach? Would you like consistent and timely updates on your team's performance? We have a completely customizable app that can give you real-time information via the internet or your handheld phone. Track the performance of your client's progress with their physical fitness regimen. Track team members' performance or schedule a workout session. Meet up at the gym, on the bike trail, or wherever your physical activities take you. The app is called Socially Fit or SoFit and can be found on the iTunes Store. Look for the blue Socially Fit icon. When combined with data analysis capabilities, you not only feel the effects of your fitness routine, you also see the graphical progress of your results. The app makes the complex simple, so that more of your time is spent sculpting your physique with less time tracking your results with old-fashioned pen and paper. 
Download it today to begin a new year with data to show your progress in meeting your goals. Are you socially fit? I hope everyone listening, if you are not socially fit, I hope you will become socially fit with us this year. I'm welcoming back another priceless personality on our show, Carl David. He was born in Philadelphia, and he is the third descendant of a four-generation art dealer family specializing in American and European 19th and 20th century paintings, watercolors, and drawings. He is the author of Collecting and Care of Fine Art. Now, Carl, who was the first David that started the art dealer business <laughs> in New York. That was family. actually my grandfather, uh, whose name was David David, and he oh. was in this the time he was a kid as well. Uh, and then my father came along, and then my brother after that, and now myself, my wife, both our sons. Uh-huh. And so we are now in our fourth generation with our sons. They started out actually in New York and then moved to Philadelphia because I think they had family here back in the 30s. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, and where did they come? Where did your grandfather come from? What country? He came from Russia. Oh, okay, okay. I have Russian grandparents too. Okay. <laughs> and um, how did he get into the art dealer business? Do you know his history a little bit? Well, he had a passion for antique furniture and uh-huh. old jewelry and... Um, it, it, just antiquities. Um, I don't know where that came from, but maybe there was a European influence. So they uh-huh. started dealing in, in that kind of thing, antiquities and, and little objects of virtu and just works of art. And my father wanted to really be a painting dealer. Uh, oh. and I don't, I'm not sure my grandfather loved that idea because my father sort of changed the direction of the business. I mean, we're still dealing that to some degree, but... Mm-hmm. My father wanted to open up and, and get a, a bigger building and, and just become a, a a gallery and deal in old master paintings and French impressionist uh-huh. paintings. And, and that's what he did. And um, it, it was really his passion. And there was a time here in the gallery when we had a Baroque concert. My father bought a, a, a Baroque concert from Channel 12, which was WHYY, the public television station. And mm-hmm. he set up this quartet with uh, lots of chairs and food and actually hosted a concert and, and in the gallery on the second floor, and we had a whole gallery filled with Baroque paintings. Oh, how fabulous. So wow. That was pretty neat. What a neat family to grow up in. And now, did you study art in school, or did you just absorb it all working with your father in the gallery? A little bit of both. I mean, I, I took some art history courses, but in the day-to-day life situation and, and having paintings brought in and out of our house all the time and going to museums and you know, being stuck in the basement of the Louvre at lunchtime, <laughs> being locked down there. <laughs> those were those were great times and great experiences. You can't get that from books. And, and you know, um, I, I got a, a business degree from Oglethorpe College and mm-hmm. thought that I knew enough to run the business when I came into the business. Well, guess what? You know, when you hit the streets, um, you can kind of throw the books away and remember some of what was in there. But the, the street business is a lot different than what you learn in school. So I kind of conformed to what was going on here instead of trying to change the rules. I grew up, you know. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I realized that you don't change the machine; the machine changes you. And you know, if it ain't broke, we'll fix it. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I learned with time. You know, I was young. Mm-hmm. Now, define what success means to you today as we speak, and share with us if you have any regrets or advice for our listeners. Well, the success 
that we've had in our business comes from hard work and it comes from dedication and persistence and taking the bed with the good and, and rolling with it, knowing that tomorrow's another day, no matter what happens. And life's lessons are the same way. I mean, I think you have to apply life's lessons to business and vice versa. Um, the success that I feel, one of, one of my major successes, I mean, the first book I wrote was Collecting a Tara Feinhardt and Crown published it for me in New York. That was back in 1981. And that was my first real foray into writing. I mean, I'd done some magazine articles and things, but, um, and you know, I looked at that as success. success. I didn't do it for money. I did it to, to level a playing field for investment in art, which was the hype at the time. And mm-hmm. I got a lot of flack from colleagues. You know, how can I do this and, and you know, give out such privy information? And I said, well, you know, I can put my hand on it. If you can't, that's your problem. I just felt it was fair to, to just equal the, uh, the forces out there. But the, uh-huh. the bigger success was this book at Baderfield, How My Family Survived Suicide, because it took a lot out of me. It still does when I do these interviews, but I feel mm-hmm. it's something that I absolutely have to do. It's part of what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, I know that to my core, and mm-hmm. to me, this is a success. You know, when I do these things, I don't, I can't measure the after effect of how many people might be helped or, or yeah. how many lives might be saved. But And I don't need to measure that. I don't really need to know that. I know mm-hmm. it's somewhere in my heart that it's helping people. And to me, that's the biggest success that I can have. I mean, there, there are two other areas that I'm trying to work with with this book, and one is to get it in every school system in America. Mm-hmm. Um, a huge endeavor. And I won't quit until I at least have some partial success. And the other uh-huh. one is a film. Um, I, okay. I really want a movie because I feel that if this were in film format, it would affect so many more people. I mean, I think millions of people would, would be affected by it in a positive way. So uh-huh. I've been trying to work with some kind of venue to get it made into a film. And I, I won't quit until I do. Well, I'm I'm happy to hear that you're going to do this because this is a powerful, powerful story and it's positive and it will be so helpful to so many people. And as we said, our interview is archived at iHeartRadio, so they have over five, 55 million subscribers. So this message will get out there. We can't exactly keep track of who hears it when, but once we archive it, it's there for anyone who needs this help and this advice. We have one minute. Do you have any regrets or things you'd like to do over? I uh, just wish I had seen this event coming, you know, so that I could have maybe prevented it or gotten my brother help, mm-hmm. um, you know, for whatever was going on in his mind. And, um, you know, just that's, that's really the only regret that I have. Um, you know, there isn't much else I can say or do except continue on the path that I'm doing mm-hmm. and know that I'm reaching out and hopefully, you know, enough people hear this uh, that it, it gets a positive response. I know everyone who's read the book says it's incredible, and, and they, they don't know how I could have done this and put my, that much of myself into it, to which I answer, if I didn't do that, then it wouldn't be worth its salt. So <laughs> I, keep, I keep moving forward, I keep paying it forward, and I keep trying to be there for people um, to explain that no matter how bad life is, there's always someone who's got it worse, there's always tomorrow, there's help out there for them, that they're loved, they're not alone, and you know th- this is just something that, they can overcome with help. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I think you found your passion, 
And I've been pleased, very pleased to interview you today and share you with my many listeners. Uh, I hope you will come back. And I hope when you come back, we'll be talking about your upcoming movie. (laughs) That would be great. I would look forward to that. And I, I give you my word, it will happen. Okay. Well, well then, I will make sure that it happens. And I thank well, you so much for having me on your show. Well, give me your word that when it happens, you'll announce it here on my show. <laughs> Absolutely. Be happy okay. to do that. <laughs> wonderful. To my wonderful listeners, we hope you've enjoyed our show today. Hasn't it been an amazing show? Such a positive message and a sweet story. My upcoming guests for the show are all exciting, elect eclectic and energizing they are clever creative and contagious they will amaze amuse and astonish you this is the show where you hear inspiring information that will help you to become successful i'd love to welcome you to our no whining world you know we really love sharing our stories our struggles and our secrets for success it's our hope we can encourage all of you to emulate our guests today and every day Remember my mantra, now if you think it, then you can do it. So for now, dear friends, please stop with the whining and then start smiling and then start sharing our show with everyone you know. And if that doesn't work, then start eating chocolate, lots and lots of chocolate. Again, thank you to my wonderful guest today, Carl David. This is January Jones thanking you for joining me today on my journey and reminding you to take care and stay safe. We want to thank you for listening to January Jones Sharing Success Stories. Always remember Ms. Jones' personal mantra, if you can think it, you can do it. That's what all of our guests have done with their lives, and so can you. You are the ultimate success coach in your own life. All you need to do will be to start sharing your own story with your family and friends. We hope that our guest stories will encourage you to explore an equation in your future that will combine your creativity plus connecting with others will enable you to be successful too. Always remember, your passion plus your purpose will equal prosperity as you explore the wonderful world of January Jones.